The scripture today is from um, Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 7. And I, I picked the, the, a bit of the preamble to, the, um, to start with, verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the preamble to the whole Ten Commandments, at least part of the preamble, is this idea that God is a God who frees you. He, he's not trying to uh, shackle you or, or um, hold you down. He's trying to uh, release you. And the Ten Commandments are about that too. And we shall, we shall hopefully see that today. Verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. I brought with me an um, a illustration. Um, a client of mine about 25 years ago went on one of the tours of Israel and the Holy Land. And she brought, she brought this back in her suitcase. How she did that coming out of Israel, I don't know. Um, but this, this, this rock is from Mount Sinai. Okay, so I wanted to bring it to show it to you so you can have an idea that the, the, the Ten Commandments were written by God's finger on tablets of stone. So you get an idea of what that looks like. And so the tablets were very much like this rock except for they were a different shape and a different size. And, and they weren't maybe this color. But otherwise, <laughs> this is an exact replica. And of course, the original tablets had, um, they were inscribed. And this one, wait a minute. I've not seen this before. Um, it looks like it's in Hebrew, but I'll try to translate. Under penalty, of law, thou shalt not remove this stone. Signed, Mount Sinai National Park Service, 3000 BC. So, God wrote him on a on a stone with his own finger. I guess there's, you know, there's, God didn't write a lot. He wrote on the wall, I guess. With, but this is the other time that he scribed these. These are important to us, and they're important because of who he is. So my outline today is God is God, other gods aren't, and you become like the gods you serve. That's the outline. God is God, other gods aren't, and you become like the God you serve. God is God, point one. Well, there are no other gods before God. For one reason... Because there was nothing before God. God created reality, and so literally there's in the timeline, there's no anything before God. There's no gods before God. The other gods have been created since then. So in terms of causality, which is a mind-boggling thing, you know, we, we think that X happens because of Y, and uh, uh, Y happened because of uh, whatever other letter you want to put, Z. Uh, well, who, who calls God? That's a mind-blowing thing. Uh, he's preeminent. But there's another distinction that we're going to make today about why God is God and other gods aren't, is that God is a God of love and other gods are not. So we can look at a lot of the qualities of God, but today we're going to be focusing on that God is love. The first commandment is about love. It may not appear that way. You may not have thought of it that way before, but the first commandment is about love. And Jesus says as much in Mark 10, 
uh, a scribe, a, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? Talking about all the commandments, all the laws. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, the most important one. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, which is right after the passage that we read this morning. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or you could translate that, the Lord, the, there is one Lord. There's one God, no other gods before me. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your mind, and all your strength, and with all your mind. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So, so Jesus takes this idea and he says it's about love. It's about loving God and being loved by God. You see there, um, I think you have it, the quote by Lewis. So the Ten Commandments ultimately aren't about performance or checking a box. They're about uh, responding to God's love. Uh, there's a, a mere Christianity. Uh, Lewis writes this line. I read this book many, many times and never saw this line. I guess it was about 15 years ago I was reading it, and this line popped out at me. He says, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. So get that. God, God didn't, he doesn't need followers. If God were writing the Ten Commandments on the Internet today for the first time, he would not say, you shall have no other gods before me. And before I go to the other nine, be sure to hit that like button because it'll really help me out with my sponsors. Uh, God does not need us. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He doesn't need our votes. He doesn't need our money. Sorry, Pastor. Um, he, loved, he, he, he loved us into existence, C.S. Lewis said. Uh, not because we were needy, we were superfluous, in order that he may love and perfect us. God created so he could pour out his love, not so he could soak adoration or obedience or allegiance back in. He wants that, but only as a response to his love. That's the theme of reality, if you will. Um, John 3.16 says that uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but you could shorten that verse to God so loved the world that he gave the world. Um, he gave it to us because he's a loving, good God and he wants to pour himself out. So God is God because, for one reason, because he's a God of love. Other gods aren't God for many reasons, but today it's because we're, we're talking about because they don't love. False gods can neither receive or give love. In fact, instead of giving, false gods devour, devour. Now, I'm going to give you an example of a false god um, from a, a person I know. Um, but as we go through it, I want you to be thinking about three things uh, about false gods or other gods. Number one, we feel or fear our way to other gods more than we think our way to them. Therefore, we leave false gods not by thinking our way out, but by some other means. Number two, uh, uh, other gods are good things made into ultimate things. That's Tim Keller's definition, I think. 
they are good things, or often good things, maybe most of the time good things that we make into ultimate things. And number three, we become like the God we serve, particularly in that we lose or diminish our ability to love to the degree that we serve other gods. I'm hoping that this idea of losing our ability to love will capture you and maybe spur some conviction about some other gods that you're in tyranny to. Now, you've heard of some false gods. You've heard of Baal, maybe, and perhaps you've heard of Molech in the Old Testament. But there's another god, a very ancient god, that you may not have ever heard of. That god is named Enoch, Enoch, spelled E-N-O-G-H, Enoch. You ever heard of him? No? Okay. Thank you. We've got one honest person in this. It's not a Ten Commandment, but it's up there. I'll, I'll uh, tell you what a client said to me this week and see if you hear his allegiance to the God of Enoch. He, uh, I wish I could tell you this whole story. He's got a very interesting story. But um, he said to me this, this week, I have this underlying anxiety. I have this underlying anxiety that I've not done enough. Do you hear the God of Enoch? I have not done enough. Uh, The enough family of gods, I don't have enough. I'm not enough for my spouse. I'm not enough for my kids. Um, It's a whole family of gods. And this client was saying, I have this anxiety that I've not done enough. Now, a couple questions about that that sentence and this, this guy's experience in life. How many areas of life can you apply um, the idea that I'm not doing enough? How many areas can you apply that to? I like that. All of them, right? I'm not doing enough at work. I'm not doing enough for my workout. I'm not doing enough for my family. I'm not doing enough my quiet time. We can apply it everywhere. It's endless. But there's other areas too. There's potential areas that you might not, potential or future areas that uh, for this guy, when he gets married, will I be doing enough there for my wife, my family, my neighborhood? And then there's potential areas that aren't very likely in your life or not very realistic perhaps. I really should learn to play the guitar. Classical. Maybe I should get an MDiv. Um, and then there's the area that you can apply not doing enough to what other people expect of you. How many people do you have in your life? Multiply that times the number of expectations that they might have of you and see how you stack up to doing enough. Secondly, if the anxiety is underlying, like he said, then is it really about doing enough for work? Or is it about something else? Is it underlying? Is there an underlying sense of worthlessness or worthiness that he wants to get out of doing enough? If that's the case, then it's, it's more existential. It's more, it's more um, important. If I don't do enough, then there's something wrong or insufficient or invaluable or not valuable about me. If that is what his worthiness is about, then here's a word problem for you. 
How many sales will it take for this man to make for him to feel of value? How many good year-end reviews will it take? How many attaboys from his wife will it take before he feels okay about himself if he follows the God of enough? When is enough enough for the God enough? He tells me that he feels this mostly about, he feels it all over in his life, uh, this that he's not doing enough, that he's coming up short, that somebody's going to find out he's an imposter and they're going to expose him, he's going to lose his job, and then he's going to run out of benefits, and then he's going to be by a can, a 55-gallon can warming his hands in the winter. That's where his mind cascades to. But he feels it mostly about work. And I ask him, does it ever relent? And he said, yes, I get one buffer day. I want one buffer day a week. Friday ends, and Saturday comes, and so I can sort of detach from all the stuff that I haven't done or that I'm supposed to do or that's expected of me on Saturday. And then I said, well, what's Sunday like? He said, well, Sunday, all of it rushes back in again. And I start thinking about all the lists, the things that i got to get done, and the expectations are on me. And I start, I start thinking about it. And, of course, he loses focus on his family or anything else when he does that. And I asked him, I said, so it happens on Sunday. When does it begin to oppress you on Sunday? And he sort of laughed, and he said, Saturday night. So his weekend, his his day of buffer is getting squeezed by the God enough. And that's the way it is. It's relentless. Well, remember I told you there's three categories that I want you to think about when we think about other gods. One is we fear or feel our way to other gods more than we think our way to them. This man I'm describing, he did not Google uh, the 10 best other gods for 2023 and pick one. Somewhere along the way, he connected his legitimate desire for approval with performance. Somewhere along the way. Or getting other people's approval. Uh, It may have been his dad. Maybe his dad modeled that for him. Or maybe his dad, after some failure in his life, shook his head and said, you're not going to be worth anything. And he connected it that way, in a negative way. Maybe he got his first real paycheck in his 20s, and it unexpectedly scratched the itch inside of him. And maybe he felt something like he could be somebody. And maybe he'd never gotten that from sports or from dating. But but he began to think, if I perform, if I get things done, if I make X money, if I get these projects happen, then maybe I can be somebody. We want approval, and when something comes along that promises it, we by trial and error, become attached to it. We get hooked to feeling our way into it, experiencing it. Number two, notice that he's making, uh, to the degree that he's making an other God out of this, he's making a good thing into an ultimate thing. Performance, excellence, uh, uh, competence, those are good things. Um, But when they become gods, they're excellent servants, but they're terrible masters. And number three, we become like God, like the gods we serve, and that, help, that makes it so that we diminish or lose our ability to love. So where is this man heading? If he continues to, to be plagued by this, if I don't do enough, then somehow I won't be valuable. If he pursues that, he'll always be looking for one more thing to do. Always one more thing to do. 
And then he'll get that thing done. And what will his bosses do? They'll give him more stuff to do. Because that's what you do. When somebody gets stuff done, you give them more stuff to do. And he'll complain about it, but he'll do it because his sense of value relies on getting stuff done. See how dominating that is, how tyrannical that is? He knows it isn't exactly rational, but he can't successfully argue himself out of it. He becomes like his God, slavishly trying to satisfy something. And he loses the ability to love little by little, not just because he's too busy to love, but because even the things that he does love, uh, like his family or friends, he starts loving them with a, uh, an increasingly mixed motive. He loves them because he loves them, but he also loves them because he wants to feel like he is somebody. And there's a difference between doing something for the good of others and doing something because you have to feel valuable. Hear that? There's a difference between doing something for others because it's just a good thing to do and doing something for others because you want to get something back. There's a story of the... This is, this is an old story because the man was reading the newspaper in the morning and his wife um, uh, is in the kitchen with him and she wants to interact with him and she says, I love you. And he keeps reading the paper and she says, I love you. He's reading the paper. I love you. You hear the hanging. I need something back. I'm doing this because I love you, but I want something back too. Um, he becomes demanding, critical, driven, and gradually removed more and more from love. Do you serve the God enough? Now, there's lots of different types of guys. I just picked one. But I got a few diagnostic questions to see if you serve the God enough. Now, if you listen to these questions and you feel, um, you feel pressure or pride or a sense of worthlessness, then that's an indicator that you're serving another God, the God of enough. Because... With the true God, we do what we do because we're loved, not in order to get loved. Big difference. But with these other gods, the God of enough, we do things that are good so that we can feel valuable or okay about ourselves. So, are you doing enough? See what you feel when I ask you these questions. Are you doing enough for your kids? What do your, what do your kids eat? Are you being honest with your spouse daily? How about your parents? Are you being respectful and kind to them? What about your in-laws? What about them? Did you put enough thought into that Father's Day card? Do you have an emergency fund? Do you work out enough? And when is the last time you flossed? Do you do the back ones too? Now, all of those things, they're good things things to aspire to at one level or another. Um, but when they become ultimate things, or when we do them uh, to serve them so that we can feel valuable, then they become tyrants for us. But think about this. Is, there, is it possible that we could face a list like that, the Ten Commandments, 
or even Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, is it possible we could think about those good things that we hear that are hard to do and hard to be consistent with? Can we think about them and have a different and a cleaner response to them, a non-self-condemning conviction? Now, what is that? You ever had a non-self-condemning conviction? Some sense of this makes me want to do something better or bigger? not makes me feel smaller and shameful. Or if you have a, um, a response of curiosity, then the, the serving the real God, the true God, the loving God, enables us to have that second kind of cleaner response. Other gods deceive and devour. They want cattle, not children. So there's a, there's a um, C.S. Lewis quote here. That, we don't have that one, right? It's in your, oh, it is. I'm so impressed with your team back there. <laughs> it's not chiseled in stone, but dang, it's good. Um, now this, this quote is from the Screwtape Letters, which C.S. Lewis wrote, and it's kind of a backwards way of looking at things because he writes it as if it's a, it's a correspondence between a senior devil teaching a junior devil how to tempt his client or his person. So it's kind of backwards, almost like a double negative. And my wife, she tells me, double negatives are confusing. Right? And I said to her, well, double negatives are not without their non-ineffectiveness. <laughs> we we kind of had a sweet moment over that. So this is a little bit backwards, okay? So think about when he says um, his, with capital, he's talking about God, and when he talks about the enemy, he's talking about God, and when he talks about our father, he's talking about Satan. Okay, so he's the devil talking, or a devil talking. And he says, one must face the fact that all the talk about his, God's love for men, and his servants being perfect freedom is not, as one would want to believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to him. We serve him because we want to, is what he's saying. <clears throat> we, devils, want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other things into himself. The enemy, that is God, wants a world full of beings united to him but still distinct. <clears throat> when you come to God... You get yourself back. When you come to Satan, you lose your identity. You lose yourself. So the contrast between God, other gods, and the God, Jesus tells us in John 10, the thief, or the evil one, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So the first commandment is really an invitation uh, to life. It's compelling us to come 
to love and to be loved. It's not a soul-killing box to check. Third point, you become like the God or gods you serve. Psalm 115 says, those who make them, that is idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. If you make idols or trust in them, you become like them. Here's a quote from a book I have not read. I think your pastors probably do this too. What's a good quote for the sermon? This is a good quote for the sermon. What people, it's from a book called We Become What We Worship. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, they resemble. We become like the gods we serve. When you serve other gods, you become driven by what that God demands. Living with an underlying dread of facing cascading consequences that it threatens to erase your very value. Like the man who felt like he couldn't do enough that I told you about. He's constantly worrying, do I need to add a page to that report? Do I need to make another call? Do I need to try harder? He becomes magical in his thinking. I've got, the, I've got to word this email just right. You ever fuss over emails, wording them? Does all the font match? Did I look at the CEO wrong last week? If I don't reply right away, what would they think? He sacrifices other concerns, his health, relationships. He overworks, overfrets, overthinks, and overcompensates. Oh, I forgot where I was here. He is irritable and feels no one appreciates what he has to do. He might blame others or blame himself or just both. He becomes a human doing and forgets what a human being is. That's what happens when you serve other gods. When you serve God, listen to the promise here. If you, when you serve God who brought us out of, out of slavery... The New Testament teaches us that when we serve God, we become like Him to the point that we regain ourselves. Our mind slows down. Our mouth slows down. Our ears open up. So do our hearts. We have less to hide, less to fear. We learn to trust ourselves. We might remember what it's like to enjoy something simple and good. We recover the ability to try something new. We don't take things so personally. Forgiveness ceases to be something we flee from and becomes sort of a freeing superpower. You open up. Living water flows through you, cleaning you up on the way to refreshing people around you. If someone gives to you, you let yourself receive it. And you give, not to give something back, but for the sheer joy of giving the sheer joy of giving. That sounds pretty nice to me. Now, I'm going to read a... um, This is the second example. I gave you an example of the God enough. This second example is sort of the God we make out of the way we relate, a certain way we relate. When we're threatened or afraid, we go to our strategies about how we we work that relationship or work that event. So this, this was a post I wrote several years ago called Muscle Man. It's, it's about me. But you spell muscle, M-U-S-S-E-L. 
muscle. Okay. I'm a true muscle man. That is, when I feel afraid, I clam up. I shut myself up inside a shell, and there I am self-contained, needing nothing, needing no one. Hard on the outside to protect my soft internals from hurt and disappointment. Yes, encased in my shell, I've created my own mini-world, and there I am my own mini-God. I flexed my muscleness just the other night. Something happened between my wife and I, something producing a negative feeling, something like hurt. And so I did what I do when I feel threatened. I cried out to the other God that I rely on whenever I am afraid. Oh God, the great I clam. Protect me now, I pray. Well, I didn't actually say that out loud. But I did clam up. And further, in a way to really detach from the situation with my wife, I decided to go to bed early. Yes, I would close my lid, burrow under the blanket, and lay in darkness there to froth and ferment. But my plan hit a kink. My wife, not yet sensing my turmoil, said sweetly, you know, I'll just turn in early with you. And so she snuggled in beside me. Now, I had to turn my back to her, which for a clam meant you had to figure out which side is your back, first of all, and then roll over, which isn't an easy maneuver for an armless mollusk. But I managed it, and I lay there cold and impenetrable. Now, I wasn't trying to send a message, but my wife got one anyway. I wasn't trying to make her feel alone. I just wanted some space. I wasn't trying to scare her. I just wanted to feel safe myself. I wasn't trying to accomplish any of those, but I succeeded in all of them. Here's my confession. Just when I need to trust God the most, I reflexively turn to other gods. Just when I need to transform into a trusting, mature man, I devolve into an adolescent crustacean. Just when I need to talk, I clam up. When I need to be vulnerable enough to love, I pull in and shut down. I trust my God of detachment to protect me. And when I do, I end up hurting the very people that I want love from. I create a world small enough for me to control, and to some degree I succeed. But then that world, small world closes in around me, and I'm in there alone, which is what I thought I wanted. I thought I started this, I started this because of some hurt with her, but it becomes all about me. Just picture my wife lying there trying to spoon with a giant necretious bivalve clam. And you immediately see my shellfishness. <laughs> but it really isn't funny. <clears throat> it's really bad hurting my wife like that. But as bad as that is, it's even worse, far worse. When I shut the doors to life, I'm saying to God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I am my own. I do not need light or air or you. And tragically, I get out. I get, I get what I set out to get. No light, no air, no one. I succeed beyond my wildest dreams and beyond my most horrible nightmares. I succeed in making my own, my own tiny universe where I am alone and shut down from love. 
One more page here to close and to try to tie it in with the sermon. I am sort of like a God in there, I suppose, but in that kingdom, which isn't a place of, doesn't become a place of freedom, but a prison. The whole reason I clammed up in the first place is because I was feeling some loss of love. I wanted to create a world where I could control love, but ended up creating a hell where love is not even possible. To clam yourself is to damn yourself. I became like a God I serve, alone in the dark, in the dark mud of my fears. No love going out and no love coming in. And so it is when you place any other God before the God of love, you end up becoming like that God. And since other gods can neither give nor receive love, then neither can you. If you serve other gods, your ability to love shrinks. It devolves. If you serve God who does love, then your ability to love grows, expands. Other gods promise control, but they eventually enclose around and entrap you. When you're threatened or afraid, you will turn to them reflexively and turn into them. Your world will become small, your most wonderful gift, your most wonderful gift, the capacity to be loved, by God and to be able to pass that love along to others will become suffocated. You'll become voiceless like the dumb God you serve. The first commandment compels us, can I say invites us, away from that prison. Put the Lord of love first in your life. It will scare you to trust in the living God and lay aside your other strategies and gods. It'll feel like death, but it's the opposite. You won't finally die you'll slowly begin to open up and live. When you feel like contracting, you will feel options to expand. When you want so badly to control, you will find the clumsy ability to trust. You will find that when you put the Lord God before other gods, the very thing you thirst for, He wants to give. Come back to Him who came for you. Uh, The song, if you... Um, I forgot the line there. If you thirst, Jesus says, come to him. I want to close with a passage where Jesus actually says that very thing. John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's what you become like when you serve the God of love. Amen.